Welcome, everyone, to the Bread of Life. I trust God will exalt His truth before you in our time together. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, the Executive Director of the International Discipling Ministry, Church Partnership Evangelism, and the Bible Teacher at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. To learn more about our work here and abroad, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Now, let's turn to our time in God's Word. John's introduction to his gospel offers us lofty words and a mix of poetry and prose. It's an introduction that would have satisfied any Jew or Greek in the day in which it was written. Both Jew and Greek would have appreciated an anthem of praise to the word. Both would have applauded all that was stated in the first 13 verses. But verse 14 would have rocked them to the core. The word was an accepted notion of truth and of the divine, but when John said, "...the word became flesh," He spoke a revelation and caused a revolution in the hearts and minds of men and women. Well, this is one of the most wonderful passages in all of Scripture. It's a song. It's a revelation. It's a proclamation for the ages. It's offered in simple, concise language with short, clear sentences. And what it says is full of deep and profound mystery that can leave us, if we really consider it and look at it, in silent wonder. It's said of Charles Dickens that when he came to North America and traveled to Niagara Falls, that he spent seven days staring at the falls in complete silence because he was overwhelmed with a sense of its greatness. And this passage is one of the great Niagaras that you'll find in Scripture. It's one of those passages where you are best served coming before it and sitting in silent, bowing wonder and in an attitude of worship. Now, you can do that on another occasion, and I encourage you to do that. This morning, we'll try to come to some sense of an understanding of what is being said here. The Christian rightly identifies this book as the Gospel of John. In this sense, we recognize that this is an account of the good news of the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew and Mark wrote their Gospels, and so Luke. It's interesting in Matthew and Mark that they both begin their books, their accounts, with titles in the very first verse. And they also identify the main figure of their writings in the very first verse. Both of them refer in those first verses to Jesus Christ. He's the one they're referring to. It's his good news story. John doesn't tip his hand towards Jesus Christ or Jesus of Nazareth until verse 14. And he doesn't mention his name until verse 17. Instead, when John begins and writes this prelude to his good news gospel, he gives a commentary on the word. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at this passage and I want us to read it considering that we may be reading it for the very first time, and considering that as we're reading it, we're not Christians. We haven't been taught the dogma. We haven't been taught the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're Jews of John's day, or we are Greeks in John's day, and we are bringing to this reading and this writing the conception that John knows we have. John knows that we have certain things in our minds, in our thoughts. Actually, the first 13 verses are appealing directly to our understanding, and he's writing to us. And so, as you read it, let's look at what they would be seeing and what they would be noticing. What you'll see as you read it is that the things that are written here would conform well to their notions and ideas, their understanding. As the Jew would read this, and he would look at this, this commentary on the Word, 
he would have a very clear understanding of what the word, what the word logos in the Greek, what it means. They would understand that this word logos, this word the word, in the beginning was the word, they would know that this name is a name that is put in the place of the holy name of God. You see, in the Jewish synagogues, the scripture is read, what we call the Old Testament. And in the time of Christ, that scripture was read in the original Hebrew. But those who were there did not speak in the original Hebrew. A long time prior to that, most of the Jews in Israel had stopped being able to speak Hebrew or understand Hebrew. There would be an individual, they spoke Aramaic. And as a concession to them, an individual would stand next to the individual who was reading in the Hebrew. And as he was reading in the Hebrew, this individual would translate what he was saying in Hebrew into Aramaic for everyone to hear and understand. Eventually, as that began to progress, these individuals who were providing verbal translations would literally write out the translation. And these translations into Aramaic were called the Targums. You'll have them still today. The Targums were a translation of the Hebrew language into the spoken language of those that were being read to. And now what's interesting as you look at the Targums is to see how they approached the personal name of God. You see, when a Jew was reading the Hebrew and he came upon the personal name of God, he would simply not mention it. He wouldn't read it at all. It was an unspoken name. They might put in its place the name the Holy One. They might say the Lord Adonai in the place of that name. By the way, the name I'm referring to is the name Yahweh. It was considered the unspoken name for the Jews. It was considered such a holy and high name that they were afraid to speak it in an unworthy manner. And so, not certain that they could do that. They just wouldn't speak it at all. And so they put in Adonai or Lord or they would say the Blessed One. Well, in the Targums, you see the translation of the Hebrew scriptures. And when they would come to the name of God, Yahweh, they would insert different words, different names to identify them. And one of the most common and often used terms was the term, the word, the word. And so in Exodus chapter 19, verse 17, where it says Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God, the Targum would write and say they went out to meet with the word of God. William Barclay makes a note of just one Targum, that of a man by the name of Jonathan, that finds him using 320 times the word replacing the name and person of God, replacing the name Yahweh. For example, when Adam and Eve heard the Lord walking in the garden, Jonathan's Targum says they heard the word of God walking in the garden. They change it. Leon Morris, another commentator, points out that Philo, the Hebrew philosopher, used this term, the word, 1,200 times in his writings. And many times he uses the term to speak directly to the person of God and the name of God, but at all other times he uses it to speak to something that is close or so closely in reference to God that it's distinct from God, but it is, in a sense, godly. He calls it the Word of God. And the point here is this, that in the mind of the Jew living in John's day, when they came upon the term, the Logos, the Word, they associate it closely with God. They oftentimes would associate it as a word for God himself. It would just be another way of saying Yahweh without really saying Yahweh, without saying the Lord. 
Now, for the Greeks, when they came to this, they also had an ocean of what Logos meant. To the Greeks, the word referred to the reason behind all of the universe. It was a term that was used to refer to the universal mind that guided all things. It spoke to them of the principle of order under which the universe was controlled and continued to exist. The Logos, the word to the Greek, worked to guide all of history, to direct all of the fates. It was the reason behind every man's notion and idea or concept of what was good and what was evil. The word was the mystical controlling force that kept the stars in their orbits and the tides of the sea at a regular convulsion and again guided all of the direction and fates of men's lives. Everything to the Greek mind was ruled by the word. This was particularly the notion of the Greek Stoics, but it was a concept that was commonly accepted and understood by all Greeks. It was understood even by those Jews that were living in this Hellenized Greek world. Okay, so now having said that, now understanding what the Jews' concept of the word was, and now understanding what the Greek concept of the word was, when they would take up this passage of Scripture and begin to read it, they could read the first 13 verses and go through them and find nothing controversial in it, nothing that would disturb them they would find something that would actually conform to their own conceptions and their own ideas. Something, in a sense, that, as they read it, would sound like wonderful spiritual or poetic or philosophical prose or verse. I don't know if you have poetic prose, but get my idea. Wonderful words that rang true to all they had learned. They could read it and think how lovely and how thoughtfully John has put together this wonderful essay of truth about the word it wouldn't have bothered them at all let's in fact go through this for a moment let's look at this they could accept each statement without a critical brush in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god he or it was in the beginning with god verses three and five all things were made through him and apart from him not one thing came into being that came into being in him was life and the life was the light of men and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Well, there's no surprise for them here. The Jew would have no problem with this idea that God was the creator, the word was the creator. For their own scriptures taught that God spoke the word, and all things were created. This word of creational life was tied together both in the minds of the Jews and the Greeks of that day. Look at verse 9. That was the true light which gives light to every man that comes into the world. Well, once again, they'd say, yes, that's true. They would not struggle with this concept or this idea. They understood that we're illuminated by the word. We're illuminated by these truths. The Greeks thought that their own consciences were guided by the word, by this intelligent reason of the universe, and so it wasn't hard for them to embrace that. Verse 10, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Verse 11, he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Well, that's kind of the common story in every age, isn't it? that good reason and truth and wisdom come to individuals and they reject the order of life and they reject reason and the word of truth to their own ruin. Every age can testify that men often reject the wisdom of the ages. So when they read it, they think once again, that's good, that no problem here either. Sounds right to them. Verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, 
To them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now maybe they think, uh, boy, I don't know, I'm a little bit confused by these personal pronouns here, this emphasis on the masculine nature of this word, but again, they would understand that when individuals open themselves up to divine wisdom, when an individual opens themselves up to the order of the true word of God, that, well, their lives are changed for the better. They could embrace this as a great philosophical idea, as great spiritual poetry or spiritual prose. These verses, I'm telling you, verses 1 through 13, could be fully absorbed and appreciated by the Jew and the Gentile. In fact, they would have read it, they would have maybe even read through it rather quickly because there was nothing there to cause them to halt and think for a moment. It conformed with their notions and ideas of, well, the word, the logos. (laughs) But then they come to verse 14, and things change. And once they read it, they realize that they have to go back and reread all that's gone before. Verse 14 is shocking. It takes the word and it catapults the word into the dust. It kicks dirt into their own faces and it grabs hold of them with the grubby, fleshy hands of crude hands and slaps at their intellectual ideas. It slaps at their pseudo-spiritual ideas. It slaps at their philosophical conceptions of God. It interrupts their smug notions of eternity and the absolutes of the word because it says this, and the word became flesh. Well, thank you for listening to the Ministry of the Bread of Life. To learn more about our ministry, let me suggest you go to one of two websites. Go to traincpe.org to learn more about the work we're doing all over the world to equip and engage the body of Christ in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. Or to learn about our work in your community, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, God bless you.